If you have your Bibles, open with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. We'll read our text here in a few minutes, but let me open by asking a question. How much does it cost you to follow Jesus? How much does it cost you to follow Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? What have you lost or what have you had to give up to follow in Christ's steps? Or maybe a better question to turn it around a little bit is this, is there anything you have wanted so badly that you would have given anything to get it? Have you desired something so much and so desperately that you were willing to pay a ridiculous amount of money or go through great physical pain or tremendous difficulty in order to attain it? We hear stories all the time of athletes who overcome extreme physical limitations in order to reach some goal, maybe playing a professional sport or going to the Olympics or running a marathon. We hear of parents with sick kids spending their life savings and their lives to seeing their children get the treatment they need to survive. We hear of families in war-torn countries traveling months, even years on foot to escape persecution, suffering, and death. What about you? Is there anything you love, anything you desire so much that you would be willing to give up your life to get it? So you see, this is the same question. Is there anything you love so much you would be willing to give up your life to get it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a Christian theologian during the rise of the Nazi regime. He wrote his, this book called The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read The Cost of Discipleship, please pick it up, read it. It's, it's a fantastic read. But in the book, he made a distinction between what he called cheap grace on one hand and costly grace on the other. So we have cheap grace and costly grace. He wrote this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. But costly grace, he describes this way. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble." It is the call of Christ at which the disciple leaves his nest, his nets and follows him. I remember as a kid growing up in church that I viewed my Christian life a lot like cheap grace. If I've asked for forgiveness for my sins, and if I've asked Jesus into my heart, and if I have eternal life, then what more is there to pursue than whatever I want to pursue? That's cheap grace. 
But today, my hope is that you will see that following Christ will cost you your life, and it's worth it. Following Christ will cost you your life, and it's worth it. Let's read Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person for what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Following Christ will cost you your life, and it's worth it. We're talking this morning about what does it mean to follow Christ. Kyle and I are going to be um, just sort of interspersing sermons between Chet and some other people about what it means to follow Christ. What does it look like to be a faithful Christ follower? And today I want you to understand that following Christ will cost you your life, but it's worth it. There's three things I want us to see from this passage. First, we see following Christ means joining him in his mission. Following Christ means joining him in his mission. But what was Jesus' mission? Verse 21 tells us explicitly what Jesus came to do. He must first go to Jerusalem. Second, he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Third, he must be killed. And fourth, be raised from the dead. The first thing we notice about this mission, at least the first thing that I notice is that it is very specific. Jesus could not have been clearer about what his mission was. He tells his disciples in the clearest way exactly what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. In fact, he tells them this several times with great detail. We also see that this is something Jesus must do. It is necessary for this to take place. In other words, this is the Father's purpose and plan in sending Jesus. It wasn't like Jerusalem had the best hummus in the Middle East, and that's why it was necessary for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. He's like, we got to go to Jerusalem. It is necessary to get this hummus. They have the best hummus around. I'm sure they did. But it was necessary because he knew that that was the plan from the very beginning. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. And he must be raised from the dead. And then we see Peter's response in verse 22. He pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
Now, why did Peter respond this way? Because when I read verse 21, I don't know about you, I get excited. As a Christian, I read this and I think, yes, go, Jesus, get to Jerusalem. That's where my sins are going to be paid for. That's where you're going to be resurrected. That's the climax of the story, right? But we have to remember that Peter didn't have the hindsight we have. In his mind, the Messiah would be one that would come and set up an earthly kingdom. He would deliver the Jews from under the oppression of the Roman Empire and take back their homeland once and for all. We know from the previous verses in this chapter that Peter recognized Jesus as that Messiah. He knew who Jesus was. He confessed him to be the Christ. Jesus himself said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. He has just confessed Jesus as the Christ in front of everyone else, but we see that Peter's understanding of what the Messiah would do is still incomplete. He thinks that he will be the one to save Jesus from his suffering and death, not realizing that Jesus came to save him by suffering and dying. But how did Jesus respond Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's no doubt that this stinging rebuke uh, was difficult for Peter to hear. Really, Jesus? Satan? Calling me Satan? But Jesus considered Peter's words to be of the same type that he had experienced in the desert wilderness during his temptation. Peter, even for just a moment, had succumbed to the lies of the enemy and was now trying to get Jesus to forsake his mission. Jesus tells Peter to get behind him because Peter is standing in the way of the true purpose of the Messiah's coming. Christ came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And Peter, in his desire to see Jesus seated on an earthly throne and to see himself, perhaps, seated next to him in power, cannot stand the thought of Jesus suffering and dying. But remember, Peter knows him to be the Christ. He knows his true identity. But the idea of a suffering Savior, a suffering servant, one that lays his life down for the sins of his people is still a foreign concept to him. Peter did not understand the true mission of the Messiah. Peter is only considering the things of man. His focus is on an earthly kingdom, earthly power, earthly reward. But Jesus is concerned with the things of God. So we see that Jesus' mission is to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be raised from the dead. So if we are going to join Jesus in his mission, that must mean what? We're called to go to Jerusalem. We're called to suffer and die and to be raised, right? So let's hop on some airplanes. Let's head to Jerusalem. No, there must be more to this than meets the eye. We have to dig a little deeper. What was Jesus seeking to accomplish in his suffering and death? We are told in other places in Scripture why Jesus came to do what he did. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus suffered and died, he was giving his life as a ransom for many people. 
Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So when Jesus suffered and died, he was doing it to bring salvation to the lost. John 11.51, Jesus came to die for the nation of Israel and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So we see that this purpose of Jesus going to the cross was to give his life as a sacrifice for sin in order to redeem a group of people for himself. This group of people is made up of the ones that God has chosen before the foundation of the world. These are the people that would one day make up his church. This was his mission. And this could only have been accomplished by him. We cannot give our lives as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus could. That was his mission. So, if we can't do what Jesus did in giving his life to save sinners, how do we join him in his mission? Answer, we give our lives to proclaiming the mission. Have you given your life to proclaiming the mission of Christ? Think about this. Do you structure and plan your life in a way that maximizes your ability to take the gospel to the lost? Is the mission of Jesus to redeem sinners something that you think is great for some people to take seriously, but not really a high priority for you? Is it something you think you could probably do sometime in the future when the time comes if you have time for it? You see, those who follow Christ are called to join him in his mission. It was not an option for Peter and the disciples, and it's not an option for us. Following Christ means joining him in his mission. But that's not all. Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives us more information about what it means to follow him. Not only does he call Peter and his disciples to join him in his mission, he calls them to join him in his suffering. Look at verse 24. Jesus tells us, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When we follow Jesus, he calls us to suffer with him. The expectation here is threefold. Disciples of Christ are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus knew he was on his way to the cross. In fact, this is a huge turning point in the book of Matthew. From here on out, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way there, and he's going to tell his disciples repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get beaten, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He knew he was on his way to the cross. He knew the minds of his disciples were about to be blown because they were going to witness his horrific death. And he's preparing them for their own suffering that they would later endure on his behalf. Let's examine what Jesus is really calling us to here. First, let's talk about self-denial. If there's a concept almost totally foreign to our society as a whole, it would certainly be the concept of self-denial. Almost no one 
consider self-denial to be an essential, defining characteristic of their lives, much less something they should actually pursue. But the essence of the Christian life is to be one of self-denial. But what does this self-denial look like? Well, let's look at some improper forms of self-denial and some proper self-denial. First, let's talk about improper self-denial. The first improper way that we can deny ourselves would be what's known as asceticism. Asceticism teaches that we must deny ourselves all worldly pleasures for the sake of something greater. That sounds good. That sounds really close to what Jesus is saying. But the basis in asceticism for denying ourselves these things is because we have bought into the false understanding that the material world and our physical bodies are intrinsically evil and must be denied. To satisfy any worldly desire is to succumb to weakness and to give in to a lesser pleasure rather than seeking the highest possible pleasure. Asceticism can be found in almost any religion. We're most familiar with this in monks. There's Buddhist monks, Hindu monks, Christian monks. Monks are those who have decided to pursue their religious faith through the practice of asceticism. Those who consider themselves Christian monks seek to live a life of constant self-denial. But is this what Jesus is calling us to here? When we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that this really does not make sense. We see that, that the world God created was good and was meant to be enjoyed by His creatures. To deny this is to deny what God created for our pleasure. Moreover, just looking at one particular issue, the issue of sex, we see that it's not even possible to live out the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply if all Christians were to deny themselves all sexual pleasure. So it doesn't even make sense. It's not even practical for Christians to practice this kind of asceticism, this kind of self-denial. So no, we deny the Platonic teaching that earthly physical pleasures are evil. We refuse to call evil that which God created for our good. So no, asceticism is not proper self-denial. The second improper way that we can deny ourselves is what I call legalistic self-denial. Legalistic self-denial is the understanding that by denying ourselves worldly pleasures, we will somehow earn God's eternal favor. This is the kind of self-denial that Jesus rebuked in the Pharisees and other religious leaders of his day. The Jewish leaders of his day were so quick to boast about their fasting their abstinence from Sabbath duties and their tireless observance of all the ceremonial laws and rituals, even creating hundreds of new commandments for themselves to follow and to heap up on everyone else. Well, certainly God will owe me eternal life if I deny myself all these worldly things, right? Certainly I won't face God's judgment like this tax collector over here. I fast two times a week, give tithes of all that I have, Right? A story from Luke 18. No, we don't deny ourselves because we think God's creation is evil or because we think it will earn favor with God. So, what is proper self-denial? What does it look like to deny ourselves 
in a way that is honoring to God's creation and honoring to Christ. There's three aspects of proper self-denial, probably more, at least three. First, we deny ourselves of sin. We deny sin. The most fundamental aspect of self-denial is that we must not indulge our fleshly sinful desires. Those who follow Christ are called to forsake our former way of life and pursue righteousness and holiness. This is why we are repeatedly called to put off our former selves and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are called to live in our new identity in Christ. We are to be identified with Christ who was himself sinless and pure in conduct. Like Colossians 3 says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So first, we must deny our sin. Second, when we think about self-denial, it must include a proper love for our neighbor. Our lives must be others-focused. So we must deny ourselves anything that would seek to hinder our neighbor or be a detriment to our neighbor or to keep our neighbor from knowing Christ. We must have an overarching principle of love for neighbor. Is your life marked by this overarching principle for other people? Do you deny yourself worldly pursuits and pleasures for the sake of your neighbor? Do you go, or do you go through life with your head down, never really looking up to see those around you who are hurting and in need? Have you ever denied yourself anything for the sake of someone else? Christ calls us to live lives of self-denial, putting the needs of others before ourselves, letting the law of love dictate our attitude and actions. The third aspect of proper self-denial includes a true love for God and his kingdom. We have to ask ourselves the hard questions. How does this particular practice or particular action reveal a true affection and love for God? How does this action or attitude or whatever I'm about to do create in me a desire and longing for Christ and for his kingdom? If it doesn't, then it needs to be denied. If this pursuit or desire does not result in the glory of God, then it is something that must be put off and something holy and righteous and good must take its place. So proper self-denial includes, I think, three of these aspects. Denial of sin, love for neighbor, love for God. But what does it mean to take up our cross? We look back in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up our cross? This is where Jesus takes us even further into the radical call of discipleship. He doesn't just stop at denying ourselves things that we want. He actually takes it a step further and says, not only do you deny yourself, take up this instrument of death and walk with me. 
The cross, as we all know, was not just an instrument of death. It was an instrument of torture. It wasn't like you hung on a cross and died immediately. But the death was slow. The death was painful. The death was gruesome and disgusting. And you were naked, bare naked. To tell someone that in order to follow me, you must volunteer yourself for torture seems cruel, sadistic, and even evil. So what does Jesus mean? Well, first, we have to see the immediate application to his disciples. Taking up their cross was definitely not some kind of mystical hyperbole used by Jesus to symbolize some kind of inner private commitment. This is not hyperbole for the the disciples. There's no doubt that the disciples would have witnessed many crucifixions in their lives. One commentator uh, writing on this passage writes this, not many years before Jesus and the disciples came to Caesarea Philippi, which is where they are in this passage, a hundred men had been crucified in the area. A century earlier, Alexander Janius crucified 800 Jewish rebels at Jerusalem. And after the revolt that followed the death of Herod the Great, right after Jesus was born, 2,000 Jews were crucified by the Roman proconsul Verus. Crucifixions on a smaller scale were a common sight and has been estimated that perhaps 30,000 crucifixions occurred under Roman authority during the lifetime of Christ. 30,000 crucifixions just during the life of Christ. Jesus is preparing the disciples for their own suffering, which will certainly take place after his resurrection. In fact, some of the disciples we know will actually be crucified. Peter himself would later be crucified upside down. He asked for that because he did not consider himself to be worthy to die the same way as his Lord. So Jesus' words will have a very specific, direct meaning for them very soon. But what about us? It's been 2,000 years, right? There's not many people getting crucified on crosses in downtown Urbana. Does Christ still call us to take up our cross and follow him today in modern America? There are many today that would have us believe that we, when we come to Christ, all our troubles will be over. There will be nothing but a peaceful, easy feeling. But in fact, following Christ will result in suffering. This suffering takes all kinds of different forms for different people. Many Christians all over the world still face the same kind of suffering the disciples faced, beatings, imprisonment, even death. Are you ready and willing to face that kind of suffering? When the state starts demanding that churches and pastors condone and perform same-sex weddings, are you willing to face derision exclusion, fines, and imprisonment 
by remaining obedient to God's word. We must never assume that we will never face physical persecution or even death for the sake of Christ. I realize that this sounds perhaps very far-fetched to some of you, but that kind of persecution could become a very present reality for us. Are you willing to suffer for his sake? Are you willing to be beaten, spit upon, even stoned? What about your kids? Are you willing to see them beaten, even killed, because of your love for Christ? That's a hard thing to think about. That's the hardest thing for me to think about. But this is what we must consider if we are going to call ourselves disciples of Christ. When Christ says to take up your cross, it is not a metaphor. It is not a rhetorical move to try to elicit some emotional response. It's a very real thing. Yeah, you may never face physical persecution, but are you willing to? Are you ready? But what about many other ways that we do suffer? What about sickness or disease? What about suffering through the death of a mother or father or son or daughter? What about the day-to-day hardships of fighting your own sin or dealing with the sin of others? This is all suffering. This is what it means to live in a fallen world. And this is what Christ calls us to if we are going to walk with him. Your life will be full. Maybe not full. Your life will include suffering. But then Jesus gives us a reason. He gives us a ground for why he is calling us to embrace suffering. See, we don't just suffer for the sake of suffering. God doesn't just afflict us for no reason. There's a purpose to it. He says in verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus, after talking about taking up our cross, he points us to something eternal. He says if you try to hold on to your life in this world, you're going to lose it. So the secret is that you have to give it up. You have to live for something greater than this life. Again, Jesus points us to eternal things rather than temporary things. We all want to hold on to our lives, don't we? Then we have to give them up. I see this same principle in my kids played out multiple times a day. So here's how it goes. There's usually a toy that one kid, usually a boy, wants. He spots this toy across the room. Another kid, usually another boy, sees the first boy, spot the toy, and then he decides he wants this toy too. So they both make a run for it. Neither of them wanted this toy until the other one wanted it. But the point is, they both want it now. They're they're running across the room, but only one of them ends up with the toy, usually Ezra. He's big. Um, This usually sends the other boy into a tailspin of disaster 
resulting in screams, kicking, punching, clawing, biting, etc. But when it's all said and done, only one boy has the toy. And this is where things get interesting. The kid with the toy then begins to carry that toy with him wherever he goes. He holds it close to himself. He's got it right here in his chest. He becomes super paranoid about all the other kids because he doesn't want anyone to take this toy from him. He carries it into the bathroom for potty time. He carries it into his room to get more toys for himself. He sets it down maybe, and then he walks away, and he turns around, and he stares at all the other kids just to make sure no one's going after that toy because as soon as someone makes for that toy, he's right back there to get it back, and then the process just starts over again. He carries the toy outside to the van. He tries to bring it to church with him on Sundays because for the moment, this toy is the thing he wants more than any other thing. He's doing anything he can to hold on to, to cling to that toy. Jesus says, if you treat your life that way, you're gonna lose it. But every once in a while, on that rare occasion, usually when they see mom or dad watching, the kid with the toy will freely give it up to the other one. And then the clouds will part and the sun will shine through the windows and angelic voices will rain down on high. Mama will weep tears of joy. (laughs) Not really, but... um, The point of all that is to say that this small act of kindness, which happens every now and then, um, we're able to see how freeing it is to give something up for the good of others. All of a sudden, that that, that kid is free. He's not bound. He's not in bondage to that toy anymore. He's not paranoid about everyone else. He's, He's able to give it up free. Oh, here you go. So we can't go through life trying to hold on to our toys or our lives. Christ calls us to give them up, to lay down our ambitions, to follow him wherever he calls us to go. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then Jesus gets a little more specific when he says, for what will it profit a man If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, whatever you're trying to hold on to, what value does that thing really have compared to the value of your soul? Why would you go through life trying to hold on to these treasured possessions only to lose your soul in the end? You could gain the entire world. And in the end, you'd lose your soul. So why are we running after these things with all of our might? Now, I don't know what that might be for you. Maybe some of you are running after worldly success. Maybe you've always had plans and dreams for your career. Maybe you're just trying to hold on to money or material possessions. Maybe you're holding on to a relationship that has become an idol 
Maybe you've spent your life seeking the praise of men or power or worldly status. Whatever it is, it will profit you nothing in the end if you gain it and lose your soul. It's not worth losing your soul. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Answer, nothing. Now, so far, what we have seen is very difficult to hear. And believe me, it's very difficult to preach this kind of a sermon as well. I, uh, I actually forgot that I was preaching this sermon until sometime last week. I thought I was preaching a sermon on repentance. And then Kyle reminded me that we had already decided what I was going to preach weeks ago. And uh, I was not as excited to preach this as I was about preaching repentance. Um, we talk about the cost of discipleship. It, is, it, it can be an overwhelming, frightening thing to hear. We've heard a lot about joining Jesus and his mission. It's a very difficult mission, taking the gospel to the lost. We've heard a lot about Jesus joining Jesus in suffering which means we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him wherever he calls us to go. And all of this seems way over the top, way too difficult. And quite honestly, why would anyone choose to do this? Well, because following Christ means joining him in glory. Following Christ means joining him in glory. Verse 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. One day Christ is gonna return. He will repay. He will give. He will pay back each person according to what he has done. You know what that means? It means that we never ultimately lose anything. We never miss out on any pleasure because Jesus will give that pleasure and more when he comes with his angels in the end. But just in case you don't think you can wait that long, look at verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, side note, we have to, I can make something clear. I think Jesus is referring to two separate events here. In verse 27, I think Jesus is referring to his second coming. In the end, he's going to come with his angels from heaven. He's going to repay everyone according to what they have done. That's the end, okay? That's the end times. In verse 28, I think Jesus is talking about a different event, something much nearer. I think that because that's what he says. In verse 27, there are some standing here. Who was standing there with him? The disciples. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what is that referring to? I think it's referring to the next verse. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus takes them up the mountain, and he reveals his glory to them. Jesus tells his disciples that some of them will actually get to experience the glory of his kingdom before his second coming. In fact, very soon. And when Peter writes about the transfiguration later in the book of 2 Peter, he says that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw the majesty of Christ, the glory of Christ. I don't know what that was like. We're just told he was transfigured in front of them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Jesus reveals his glory. He gives them a glimpse of himself. So Peter and James and John were able to get a taste of the glory of Christ right then and there. And if they were able to experience just a glimpse of the glory of Christ, how much more are we able to experience it now in this life when we have been given the very spirit of Christ himself? You see, following Christ means joining Jesus in glory. And that glory is something that we can experience here and now. In fact, I think we have experienced it. I think the gathering of this church together, singing songs, is an experience of the glory of Christ. One author puts it this way, even before heaven, joy abounds along the hard road that leads through death and resurrection. Nothing can compare with the joy of walking in the light with Jesus as opposed to walking in the darkness without him. Yes, following Jesus does indeed lead through suffering and death, but the path is luminous with life and truth. Jesus promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. And where Jesus is present, there is joy. Joy in sorrow for now, but joy nevertheless. See, we never walk with our cross alone. Jesus is with you. He will never leave you. He died for you, and he has given you his spirit, the comforter. Following Christ means joining him in glory. In eternity and here, now. So we take up the mission of Jesus because it's greater than our mission. We deny ourselves because in denying ourselves, we receive something better. We take up our cross and choose suffering because in our suffering, we experience greater joy, greater contentment than we could have had otherwise. And we give our lives away for the good of others because in the end, what we gain in this life and in the life to come does not compare to what we have lost in this life. Christ calls us to follow him and his sufferings because this life of joyful suffering for Jesus' sake shows that he is more valuable than all the earthly rewards that the world can offer. 
as we enjoy God and all that he is for us in Christ through the Holy Spirit, we partake of his divine glory. There is nothing more satisfying than that. And you can experience it today and forever into eternity. Following Christ means joining Jesus in glory. So, what does it look like to follow Christ? Following Christ means joining him in his mission. Following Christ means joining him in suffering. And following Christ means joining him in glory. I thought for a long time about how to apply this to Redeemer Church. But the truth is, I don't know what God might be moving you to do. Some of you here will make a lot of money and others will make very little. Some of you here will hold powerful positions in society. Others will perhaps work an entry-level job your entire life. Some of you here will perhaps be overcome with sickness, disease, cancer. Others may never experience those things. Some of us here will be compelled to ministry. Others may not. You see, the truth is, I don't know the path God has for you, but the, the call of discipleship that he gave to his disciples 2,000 years ago is the same call that he places on you. He has called you to deny yourself. Have you done it? Have you denied yourself? He's called you to take up your cross. Have you taken it up? Are you willing to suffer and do the hard things he has for you? He's called you to follow him wherever he leads you. Are you willing to go? One man that heard the call of God on his life was David Livingston. I think Chet mentioned him in his sermon a couple weeks ago. David Livingston was a medical missionary in the 1800s from England to Africa. He spent his life exploring Africa in hopes of finding a way for the gospel to be spread there. And here is what David Livingston said to the Cambridge students about leaving the benefits of England. There's a quote. Yeah, thanks. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather... It is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us And for us, I never made a sacrifice. 
How much does it cost you to follow Jesus? The cost is great, is it not? It will cost you your life. But in the end, when we worship at the feet of our Savior and enjoy his divine presence and lose ourselves in the wonder of the cross and the glory of our redemption, we will realize that it actually never cost us anything.